Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. How are you? It's Sanderson here and I have got a wonderful guest up my sleeve for you. It is Matthew Elton. He is a psychotherapist who has just written a book and as I explained in the podcast, I'm always on my uh, on my lookout, on a, on a physical lookout. Uh, I've got it's about sort of 20 foot high and I use that lookout to keep my eyes on new releases and I saw that he had a book out which was all about how to turn insight into change and the lessons that he had learned in the therapy room and in this community and amongst our listeners I know that there's lots of people who are really interested in these questions me being one of them how do you go from oh that uh that thing there that that's a that's an issue in my life. Oh God! I turns out I uh, sometimes crave the attention of uh, other people, and uh, that's why I became a clown when I was twelve. Or I think I might be talking about me, but or whatever else it might be. How do you go from insight to change? And his book took a really interesting angle on it of looking at change as a skill that you can practice and master. Oh, imagine mastering turning those insights you had into change and so this is a awesome conversation and you know how does it fit into the lifefulness world well we're all about looking at how you combine the insights from spiritual practices with up-to-date science to create lifefulness which is all about like you know doing just that combining those two things in order to answer this like crisis in meaning and belonging which was pretty like intense before Corona, but now we need community more than ever. So that's who uh, we have on the podcast. And if you like the sound of lifefulness, then we also have a community you can join online. Go and follow us in all the places. And I'm going to get out of the way and let you go and listen to Matthew Elton, because I'm sure that you will love this conversation. Hey there, welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. James, have you sorted out your headphone issues? I have. Bluetooth is not the most technologically advanced connection mechanism, but it seems to be working fine. So if there's any moments when you're just your brain is a bit dull and you're not able to be quick-witted, you can just be, oh, sorry, there's that little extra bit of delay on the Bluetooth here. Yeah, I'll blame it on the Bluetooth. How about blame, that? blame it on the Bluetooth. Don't blame it on the sunshine the moonlight, uh, all the very, <laughs> very old song references. Uh, and we have our special guest here, uh, Matthew Elton. How are you? I'm very good. It's good to be here. Uh, and we're delighted to uh, have you on. And uh, I will just so uh, to let you in on uh, knowing how we came across you and also our listeners see how these sausages made. What I do is I go and peruse the little sort of upcoming lists on uh, Amazon and I go and see which books I like and then I get in touch with people and I love the look of your book as you know a key part of the lifefulness project is about change and you have just written this fascinating book on change from a point of view as a therapist which we're going to get into as a bit of a tease there but right now I'm going to ask you the first question which we always ask everyone is uh, what was the religious spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood okay yes yeah, so I was brought up C of E so me and my brother and sister and mum we used to, to go on to church every Sunday um, and I was at a C of E 
primary school, so we had uh, religious assemblies and heard lots of Bible stories. So it was very much part of the tapestry of, of kind of growing up. I guess like a lot of people of my generation, at some point I just sort of started to drift away from that. Maybe like in my teens, I kind of was thinking a lot for myself and I thought, I don't actually think God exists. Um, and that seemed a problem for me to go to church and think God that didn't exist. Um, much less so now, I would say, but at the time it seemed like a bit of a deal breaker. So yeah, that's, that's the origins for me, that back, background. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the degree I went on to study at university was uh, philosophy and uh, psychology. So um, I suppose, yeah, kind of like a backdoor interest in spirituality through those, those lenses. Um, still don't believe in God, but I'm much more interested in, in, in church and religion, I think, than I was from that teenage phase. Um, I'm more interested now in it as a kind of cultural phenomenon and... Uh, and then also kind of interested in what you guys are doing with it. So, yeah, which is one of the reasons why I'm very happy to be here on the podcast. Well, that sets us up perfectly for our second question, which is if there was one thing which you think we could learn from religion as a secular society, what do you think it would be? Yeah, I love that question. And I was um, scratching my head a little bit. Um, and I'm going to stray into some territory that's not my home turf. And, and you, you guys might know more about it than I do. But the thing that popped into my head um, was some sort of parallel of God's infinite mercy. So I'm going to go full throttle there, some kind of parallel with, with God's infinite mercy. And my, my sense of this, I don't know how theologically accurate this is, but, um, but it's the idea that God doesn't give up on you. And I think that's a really powerful idea. You know, you can drift, you can mess up, you can mess up really big time. But if you choose to engage, and that's maybe not a religious word, but it's the word I'll use. If you, if you choose to engage, engage, then you know, God's there for you. Um, and he's there, or they are there to celebrate you making new choices. Um, God's there to be thrilled and excited that you're living fully. So I think that's a really powerful um, idea. So something like that, but without God. And perhaps you know, the heart of it is, I don't know, it's never too late. We, we live in what seems like quite a judgmental society sometimes. And this idea that there's at least something out there that will never give up on you and that will always be there, whatever you do or whatever you're not able to do. I do like that idea. There's something very comforting in that. I suppose the way that I sort of see it is, okay, what do you need to do to reverse engineer infinite mercy? And, and I don't really think it's that hard to get there, that you are a human you are born knowing nothing. You're brought up by people who had half learnt things by the time you were born and didn't study in all the classes and the science was changing. And so you kind of got all of their shit as well. And then you grew up and you're faced with the world, which was changing and fucking give yourself a break, have some infinite mercy because nothing you did was coming from you or 99.99999% of it wasn't you just sort of it's quite not quite a zero free will zone but learning how to have infinite mercy on yourself or how to ex and i guess it's also like how to experience it because i think that's one of the great things of the the idea of god it's like there's infinite mercy and then we're gonna go and jump up and down sing a few songs hear some words and then you're actually going to feel that. And I think that's something which I always get interested in. It's not just the thoughts, but religion and congregations as ways of feeling. 
so infinite mercy. This is like room 101, but uh, sort of for things that you're going to keep for religion. We should rebrand the section. We wanted to get you on to go and talk about your book. And I love the central premise of it, which is that uh, change is a skill that you can learn. And it comes from uh, you speaking to your uh, different clients and seeing which ones change and who change and how they change. And so it'd be great to start off, like, why did you write this book? And what is your central argument in it? The reason I wrote it was because this thing kept happening in the therapy room that I it had me scratching my head. And it was a good example of it would be um, somebody would come for a few sessions, maybe two or three sessions. Some things would really start to feel like they were happening, that they were moving. They would have some insights, they'd, they'd have the, these epiphanies and think, this is great. Um, and then we would hit a stall. So they had this insight and they thought, this is, this is great. I really understand something about, about who I am or about my history or about like the pattern I keep getting stuck in. Um, and uh, and they thought that this insight was this golden ticket that was going to sort it all out. And I did too, some of the time. So I got caught up in this as well. And, you know, this happened often enough that I thought, look, I, I've, I've got to really stop and think about this. Yeah. And one of the thoughts that I had was, well, you know, where else does insight not cut the mustard? And I thought about things that I've learned as an adult. So things that I just didn't really nail when I was much younger, but are sort of important to me. And it's like I learned to swim properly as an adult. And I, uh, uh, I had some piano lessons as a child, but like I've had uh, proper piano lessons as an adult. And I'm actually kind of making some progress. All the insight in the world does not help learn to play the piano or learn to swim. You have to practice. When it comes to swimming, you literally have to get your feet wet and everything else wet. And uh, I thought maybe this is what's going on in in the therapy room where we've got loads of insight and we love it we love talking about insight it's exciting and fun but maybe there's this kind of grittier thing which is more like practicing so that was the kicking off point for the book uh, so i thought a lot about it and then i started trying out different metaphors and ideas in the therapy room yeah and people seem to like it it seemed to make sense not everybody because not everything not not there's no one thing that fits for everyone but some people really liked it so yeah so i kind of I kind of dug in and thought about more about it and wrote lots of words and did lots of editing, you know, the way it goes with writing books. That seems like you're slightly underplaying writing a book because it takes quite a lot to be like, right, I'm now going to go and turn this into a load of work. I mean, that is like, what was it about the idea that you think, you know, this is different. This is something which is I'm going to go and dedicate a large part of my life to. Well, I guess, you know, um, I wanted to read this book, the book that I've written, and I couldn't find it. Uh, because I thought that, that surely there's something to this. This makes loads of sense. Uh, you know, sometimes you have an idea and you think, well, yeah, like I cannot be the person who come up with that idea. And and maybe I didn't look hard enough, right? So maybe someone else has come up with this idea. But but I thought, yeah, um, I, I I'm looking for that book. Uh, I can't find it. So yeah, I'm going to write it. I like writing. It's fun. You know, it's good. If, if I can write something, then I know I'm thinking about it clearly. And I like to think clearly about things. So I really love that when you're speaking about it, like this idea of mind skills of, in fact, what people are doing is you see them slowly learn these sort of these different skills in their mind. And that that can be the like these different practices, which are, you know, like the different uh, parts of your serve in tennis, like the different parts of your stroke in swimming. 
So it'd be really good to like go and unpack what some of those are that you see turning up again and again in the therapy room. Like what would it be useful for people to be working on so that they could turn these insights into change? So you know, what do you do when, when something goes wrong? How do you talk to yourself? And we, we learn ways of talking to ourselves from, you know, from caregivers, from teachers, from peers. Some of those ways are quite good. Some of them are, are terrible. Oh, some mate, of them are sometimes I am just an absolute, the worst word to myself. <laughs> uh, there'll be other times when I am able to just go, okay, these things happen. I've got, remember, life is hard. You were born not knowing much. Have infinite mercy on yourself. And then others where people who listen to it, I've had uh, undiagnosed ADHD and now I'm sort of getting into, I'm getting into looking at sort of trauma-based approaches for how those might inform, like having something which is just causing a lot of issues in your life. But really, the when I'm not on top of myself, there is a vile person inside me. Mm, mm. And I, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, but I think you can pra practice doing different things with that vile person. I mean, you, you can sort of practice just a kind of like putting some sticky tape over the vile person's mouth, but you can also uh, practice kind of getting into some kind of dialogue. Like, what is that vile part of you? What's it trying to, to, to do for you? And if you can figure out its motives, um, I mean, you know, you could say this is, this is all kind of metaphor run riot, but you know, that's what therapy is. Um, if you couldn't figure out what that vile person wants for you, then you might be able to do a deal with that vile person, that vile aspect of you and say, hey, you know, I know you're trying to save me from like, you know, acute embarrassment or humiliation or whatever it <laughs> might be, you know, it's going to vary. But like, uh, actually, you're, you're not up to date. This situation is not that uh, threatening. Um, uh, so, yeah, you really can practice this, I think. And I think the more you practice it, the easier it gets. Um, you need to practice it in sort of reasonably gentle conditions and then like learning a sport or, or, or almost anything, you need to practice it in slightly kind of slightly tougher conditions. You know, there's a thing in, in learning theory called uh, scaffolding. It's like you, 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 you can't just do something in one jump. You often have to, to have kind of building blocks or, or, or scaffolds to help you get up there. Um, and uh, I think that's a really useful idea in therapy, but I think it's a really useful idea in life. You know, when you're being vile to yourself, here's what I'm going to suggest. I, I'm not, I don't know, this is perhaps a bit out of order. I'm not doing therapy here, but I'm just sort of... Oh, then, mate, you've, you haven't listened to this podcast. We are able to go, you, if, if it turns into a therapy session, one, do not invoice me. This is going to be publicity for your book, but less than you think. But also feel free to uh, have a crack. Yeah. So the thought is just just is that when when that voice is being reviled, you 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 might uh, you you know you might say you know, what what is it you're trying to say you know what is it what is it that you think you're helping me with because maybe I can kind of deal with you you know maybe I maybe we can serve your goals and my goals uh, maybe there's another path other than you kind of screaming or like you know pouring toxin in my ear yeah. Yeah. Actually, when I was thinking about it, it's maybe sometimes less vile and more just sort of, uh, depending on the thing, like broken. This is never, ever going to change. The, and so what are the uh, other, what are some other mind skills that you think it's important for people to, to learn or that you've seen people learn? So we've just been talking about something that's, that's sort of, that you do as an individual, but like a lot of the mind skills I think that are really important to people are, are how they manage their relationships with other people. 
Um, so, you know, if you're one of those people that uh, when they get into an argument, they, they really kick off, they get really shouty, um, that can be very uh, unhelpful in your life. But similarly unhelpful if you're one of those people who, who is so terrified of conflict that you, you just avoid it or you fold. These, I would say, are, are, are mind skills that you might prefer to uh, reboot and readjust and redevelop. But I see them as skills, you know, and I think as soon as you start to think about them as skills, you, it, it, you can feel it sort of intuitively. Oh, yeah, that's right. It, it's, it's like a balancing act or if I, if I hold a little bit harder or hold a little bit softer. Um, so, you know, I think it's easy to, to push that analogy with, uh, with practical skills. And James, what did, because we have speak about change a lot, like both when we're talking to, uh, outside this podcast, but, uh, you know, it's a key part of our professional lives. And uh, I think often the th reason that you're interested in this stuff is because it's meaningful to you. Like what does like that sort of uh, metaphor of like change is a practical skill to learn? Like what does that make you feel? Well, firstly, it rings true for me in my own life. I mean, you talk about how, we sometimes think that the value of therapy is having these sort of insights and we'll be like, oh, now I understand myself better. Now I'm going to change how I behave. And it often doesn't go like that. I mean, I know that I've been in therapy sessions where I'm like, oh, I've got a great new piece of language to describe how I act. Great. This is going to solve my problem. And then it's like, no, it doesn't. I just I can talk about it or think about it more easily, but it doesn't actually make me change my behavior. What it makes me think is, if change is about skills that we can learn and practice, there's still a motivational element, which is you have to make yourself practice, right? So it kind of pushes the problem back a bit, one step forward. It's like, well, okay, I can know about the skills I need to do, but I don't necessarily will do them. Does that make sense? Like, how do you get over that problem? Yeah, it does make sense. And um, I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things to say there. I mean, one is that you know, some of the people that I work with, you know, motivation, if that's the, the right word for it, but uh, it's very hard to come by. So people who would pick up like a, a diagnosis of depression, if they went to the GP or the psychiatrist, you know, some of those, some of those people that I work with, it's really hard. And I probably wouldn't be pushing the skill agenda particularly hard with those people. I mean, they often what they need is they need someone just to be alongside them and willing to accept the pace that they can manage, even if it, it feels, you know, might, might feel a bit glacial to, 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 to people who aren't suffering in the same way. Before you can learn anything, you need to be accepted and you need to feel safe. So, you know, with some, with, with some people, you know, you, you just hold back on this agenda because it, it's just going to swamp them. The other thing I think I'd say is um, something about sort of learning routes. Um, and I go this I do go on a lot about scaffolding I have to say but to learning routes and scaffolding it's a sometimes people have a problem with motivation but sometimes the problem people have is that the step they're being asked to take is too big for them right now so if you can find a step that's small enough that's near enough where they're at but stretchy enough to be interesting then then you could then often it turns out that motivation is just there you know it's not like their motivation tank had run empty it's that they were being asked to do something too difficult. One of the skills of a good teacher or of a good trainer is, is to be really flexible with their scaffolding, to, to change it for every student. And I think that's, I think that's true of therapy as well. Um, I, I think you, you know, you've got to tailor it to each individual. Um, but what you're doing is you're representing, I'm going on about the infinite mercy thing again, it's 
going to sound a bit bit crazy, but but you you you're pretty pretty extensive patience and uh, not being worried that, that this person's learning route is completely different from everyone else's learning route. It's it's like you know let's go at the pace we can go. Let's not be disappointed that you can't go at the pace someone else can go at. You know, what's the point of that? You know. It really reminds me of what uh, Gabby uh, Tolakite said on our podcast. She's someone we interviewed and she is a neuroscientist of actually our brain doesn't like big changes. And so sometimes you want that thing to go and sort of totally change your life. And your brain is saying, I was in that cave and now I'm in this part of the forest, which I've never been to before. I'm terrified. And I know you think that there's more fruits here or once you get through the forest, there's a lovely river, but like I am scared and I want to go back home. And you're like, okay, we're going to have to sort of go a bit more gently. Or I've, I've decided to get out of that metaphor before we started building paths and sort of going through shrubberies or other things like that. But I, I love that, Sanderson, because uh, you know, you think about um, think about. So you know, I, I'm going to invoke some more God stuff here, but think about like if we talk about Paul on the road to Damascus and the Damascene moment, um, and we can think that like that's a moment where Epiphany is doing all of the work. Actually, I would suggest that often those moments, there's a lot of build up so that on the surface, they feel like it's a sudden transformation. Um, but oftentimes, actually, a lot there has been a lot of kind of paving work done ahead of time. So the phenomenology can feel like it's a flash and it's instant. But but I, I think if you observe it with a different lens, it's I think you know, flashes of inspiration that they're the exception and the phenomenology I think misleads us as to what's actually going on. So you're saying that before, like, you know, Paul was maybe a tax collector, but he'd started to subscribe to some newsletters of looking at other jobs and he's following some Instagram accounts of, you know, like have a life of purpose. And then one thing led to another. And that's when he went and signed up to the uh, change your career course or something of that equivalence. It's uncanny. Those are the words <laughs> Thank you very I literally much. had. Um... But I think you're right about that, Matthew, actually. I think that I love your point that the phenomenology of change in ourself misleads us as to what is causing the change. Like, I certainly know. By the way, I'm just going to stop there and just say, James, explain phenomenology. It is something which... How it feels to us. Yeah. Yeah. The, the experience, the interior experience of something. So it feels to us sometimes like we change on a dime, right? We, we just, we, it's a switch that's flicked and some suddenly we can be different in some way, but the reality I think you're suggesting is that it's actually an incremental process, but we're not necessarily consciously aware at the time that we're involved in this process. So that when we reach the tipping point, we think it's immediate, but it's not. And that fits with a lot. I'm a developmentalist by my background that fits with a lot of more modern ideas of how learning occurs. A lot of Historically, people thought that you sort of learned complex skills in a stepwise manner. So you chunk them down into bits and then you learn one bit and then you build on it and you build on it and you kind of go up a, a steady line of competence. But actually, more recent studies show that it's not really like that at all. You kind of it's kind of flat for a long time. And then there's big jumps and then there's drops after the jump and you go down to a, a previous level of competence and then you go back up again. So it's kind of more uh, 
weird and sudden. And I can see how the phenomenology of that could mislead us. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. And I'm loving what you're saying there because it, it links with a, a theme that's really close to my heart and I bang on about a lot in the book. We often have really kind of, well, I'm going to use the word weird, weird ideas about how change works. I mean, they're weird because they're completely wrong. They, they just don't fit the reality. But they're not weird because they seem very familiar and normal. They're reinforced by conversations we have, you know. Um, and what you were just talking about there, James, where we can we can hit a plateau and nothing seems to happen for ages. Um, but actually, you know, the brain is busy working in the background, making all these connections. And if we just stick at it long enough, then we lift up from that plateau. Um, but but what if what if everybody in your community, everyone in your culture, uh, everyone in your learning environment, whether it's school or, 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 or in a workplace, um, interprets being on the plateau as being a dunce, you know, um, well, what's that going to do for you? You know, unless you've got really, unless you're really tenacious, you, you might give up and you might form a conclusion about yourself that you just can't do this stuff. I think so, this is really, really great. I, I want to give our listeners an example because I think it's maybe difficult, but it's a silly example, but I think it kind of gets across the point. I, when I was a kid, I couldn't click my fingers and I really wanted to learn how to do it. And so one time on a vacation to Disney World, all the time we were in a queue, a line for our American listeners, I tried to click my fingers. And all I did was just repeatedly try to click my fingers. It was must have been infuriating for everybody around me, but for hours and hours, and what it felt like to me was suddenly I could do it. Like I couldn't do it and I couldn't do it. And, I, and then suddenly I could do it and I could do it every time. But I'm certain that if I had filmed the process, what I actually would have seen was increasing proficiency, but it didn't feel like that. It felt instant. And I think that's what we're talking about, the difference between how it feels like us to learn some change and, and what it's actually like. And I think up until that moment that you got it, you would have looked like the whitest person in the park. <laughs> just like, can't even click, just nice. It's like, oh, no, dear Lord, it's like the start of the jerk, which we know is problematic for many reasons, but still funny movie. I won't tell you about the, what I did the next year, which is I, I learned how to trill my R's. I literally, that was the next thing that I decided, which must have sounded very weird. But I love the story and it, it's a, you know, sometimes when we're learning new skills, whether it's mind skills or just practical skills or new ways of living, it's like you know, we will seem odd, you know, before we, we hit a certain sort of zone of, of competence. And sometimes it's really hard to go through that 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 territory. You know, it's a it's a can be a pretty rough path. It's good to have a long queue, uh, a long line uh, to, to, to to wait in. It's ideal for for experimenting with with a new skill. But uh, we don't always have those in our adult lives. We don't always have those opportunities. I, when this goes to something which, uh, when I was reading your uh, book, really spoke to me, that idea that you, like some of these things, you have to learn with other people. Like you can't learn tennis unless you're with someone else. And, you know, when we, like the Life on this podcast, it is we explore ideas which can help people in their lives, but then also we're trying to, build and develop uh, this practice of building secular and inclusive congregations. And I really love that idea of a congregation being a place where 
you can learn safely where people will be like, okay, you're just trying to do that. And, and you can talk about it and you can not worry about people thinking, well, I guess guy can't click his fingers. Everyone can click their fingers or, you know, and, and sort of speak about the things which are difficult. Uh, I, and, and one of the things that uh, I've, I let you know that we were going to ask is it'd be great to like with your therapist hat, like what do you see as some of the benefits from someone being in a sort of congregation or being in a sort of supportive community? Like what would be the things that they should be able to find there? Yeah, you've, you've just kind of, you know, I guess, given that you've read the book, you can you can do this, but you've kind of just grabbed my best lines, I think, you know, it's it, 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 it is exactly that I think it's an environment where you can do things, you can have experiences, you can have encounters, and you can have learning opportunities that, that are simply not possible out with uh, a, a collective environment. So I don't know whether, like a, a kind of congregational assembly is, is like kind of Bring some sort of unique qualities, you know. I don't know, don't know whether you have this in in the the states, James. We have this thing in in the UK called Park Run. Uh, do you have that in the states? I don't think we do, and I I'll tell you why. Because my father was a huge fan of Park Run, and he ran right up until the very last uh, months of his life. He he died of cancer just over a couple of years ago, and we actually did a park run in his honor in Richmond Park, the one he did. And um, I made a little speech beforehand and then it was in the Guardian. It was kind of, I was like, it was so weird because there happened to be a reporter there to write about park run. But I've thought of starting one here in St. Louis in memory of my father. So anyway, that's just a little aside to say, yes, I know park run very well. I'm very, very enthusiastic about park run. I love it. So, you know, it seems to me that uh, there are things that can happen at Parkrun that, that, that just can't happen in lots of other environments. And maybe they can happen on your Sunday assemblies, you know, but you're with, you're not just with your pals, you're, you're with a lot of people. There's a huge amount of acceptance. It doesn't matter if you're a fast runner or a slow runner. It's like the fact that you've turned up at all um, and you're kind of part of the spirit of this movement is is really kind of great and i think that 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 gives you a human experience of being kind of part of a group but being accepted being accepted for not being uh slick and competent but being accepted for for, for wanting to join in so i think that, that you know i think there are certain things that you can learn about yourself and learn about living that a context like park run or maybe one of your sunday assemblies or or, or i don't know this i think it's probably quite a wide range um but uh, some things seem to have special conditions. It's like I, you talk in, in some places about um, uh, uh, these sort of narrow niches. You've got some clever phrase for them, isn't it? Hyper, hyper niche, is that what you call them? Um, and like, who doesn't love a good hyper niche? You know, it's like, you know, you love this particular band and, and hardly anyone else knows about them. That's great. That's a brilliant thing. But um, there's something about these kind of uh, inclusive, welcoming niches like so park run is is something that i think about your sunday assemblies is is another example where you don't need to be good at something you don't need to you know you, the cost of entry is pretty low you know you don't you don't have to do a lot of signaling that you're this kind of person um uh if i'm getting it right it's like you can just kind of rock up um of course the trouble is 
people like me are really suspicious of 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 those hyper inclusive things because we think that they're they're a cult that's trying to like take over our minds and <laughs> and and do yep. do bad things. So there's a there is a marketing issue. This is what I think is cool about parkrun, right? It's like you know the shtick is you know, you're going to get around the course. It's five kilometers. You can walk if you want to. So it's pretty inclusive. Um, What's your? I'm always fascinated by uh, people's fear of uh the work that i do and james do you get the is it a cult uh conversations as well yes all the time in fact we get it so often that i have a slide in my standard presentation about our community that literally says this is not a cult but every time i say it i'm hyper aware that that is precisely what a cult leader would say yeah it's I'm always like my i've huh. I'm having so much less sex with supporters and my bank account is so much uh, sort of more meager than uh, than a cult leaders. And by less, I mean none. Uh, FYI, people, you know, the cancel squad out there. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's so odd how that this work just does people do just go and think it's a cult. What would from your point of view, what is your sort of fear around like these sorts of gatherings and sort of the cultishness? Because I just always find it interesting from how to like sort of position our work. What is it about spiritual communities and in a new way which makes you think cult? I mean, I think one thing is is that uh, I'm I'm fully aware that when you get a large number of people together, it's very powerful. If you go to a, a music gig, you know. Um, and everyone's singing together, everyone knows the words, it's very powerful. Um, so there's something, and that could be a power for good or, or power for ill. So there's something about how you, you know, you can lose yourself. And that, that can be a selling point. But I think for me, that's partly where the anxiety goes. It's like, I want to be very selective in where and how I lose myself. And what if these guys who are at the front here, what if they've got some ulterior motives? I would, I would, I would be immune if they were just on TV and I wasn't with lots of other people. But if I'm with lots of other people, like my my mental immunity will be down and they can put their viral load straight into my brain. So, yeah, I don't think I'm helping you with with how you do better marketing here. <laughs> no, but I think that is really interesting is that like in some ways it comes from people recognizing that it works or it has the capacity to work and it's got the capacity to change and it's got the capacity to sort of like you know make people make decisions and lots of other stuff like that and on the flip side it's knowing that uh like you know it could be you who goes and uh gets changed uh so you might as well go and find out whether these guys uh <laughs> are all right or not yeah i think the best selling point is for me would be to to sort of pitch the benefits in a kind of sort of gentle sort of realistic way if i see on the packaging this will transform your life utterly for the better i'm out of there you know it's 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 it, you know, it looks too good to be true it's like life isn't like that but if if the packaging is you you know what it's like you know, your life's a little bit richer there's some really nice connections to be made um, if you're into it, there's lots you can do. That, for me, that's a better sell. I don't know if that would be true of other people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? It's making a lot of sense to me, and particularly when you relate it to Parkrun. So just so just so people in the United States who are listening know what it is, it's basically a charity, a non-profit organized five-kilometer run 
usually in a park uh, where you basically can just rock up and as Matthew was saying you can walk around you can run around you can be fast you can be fit you can be slow you it can be your first run ever it doesn't matter just everyone's there to support each other to get around the track and it, it makes me think of how do we make community spaces maximally accessible and accepting for everyone so they can promote the sort of change that you're talking about. And I've been reading a lot about, there's an author called Nadia Boltz-Weber. She is a Lutheran pastor in the United States and she started this very unusual countercultural church in Denver. Um, and she has a slogan that what you were saying made me think of, which is, we don't do anything well, but we do it together. And the whole idea is that anyone can participate and even lead any part of the service. They literally come up at the beginning of the service and there's just like a binder of all the different pieces of the script and anyone can take any piece, including the children. So they've had like five-year-old children trying to do the reading or whatever, and it's okay. Anyone can do any bit. They just get each other through it and they don't have affection or high quality. Like, uh, because my instinct with my community is like, everything has to be excellent all the time. But I wonder that that places an expectation on people and makes it not welcoming for people who don't feel like they're, they're yet at excellent. Does that make any sense? That makes sense to me. It's I, I love the story that you're, you're you're telling. That's a really interesting example. I mean, these 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 things. There's a sort of tussle, isn't there? It's like excellence can be fantastic, and slickness can be fantastic, and and I'm into that. But but also this this idea of um, yeah, we're doing it together, and the together is the organising principle, and the and the excellent. If we get that, that's just a bonus. I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. It's very inclusive. Um, I'm just going to say one thing, sorry to jump in there, is that I, uh, like, this is a discussion which we've had loads in Sunday Assembly of like, oh, God, if it's good, it makes me feel that I can't take part or, uh, you know, this. But then at the same time, if people walk in and, you know, when they go to a gig, they expect it to be good. When they go to a coffee shop, they expect their coffee to be good. And then they come along and they go to a community event and like it's shit and they're like well this isn't this isn't for me and so i guess I'm, I'm always a bit like for some people that is ideal and that's what they want and then for other folk it isn't and it's a really boring fence sitting uh, answer <laughs> in this age when you should have red hot 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 takes on these things but uh yeah so sorry uh matthew carry but there's on. something but there's something there's something i think there's something deep going on there as well it's like um you know we're always trying to come up with the method, the 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 approach. You know, so therapists do it, teachers do it. Um, you know, uh, secular, non-religious, spiritual community builders do it. Where you say, well, this is the approach, and if we get the approach right, then it will it will everyone it will fit for everyone. And I think you know, it it won't. This is this is this is what we know about people. Uh, one size does not fit all. Um, uh, so I guess with with something like the Sunday Assemblies, you want a kind of you want you want something that's going to fit a lot of people. But you, there's there's not a solution to this. It's like as soon as you optimize it in the direction of one subgroup, you're sub you're, you know you're, you're you're making it worse for the other subgroup. So 
you, you, you just have to bite the bullet down on that. But, but I think um, that's, you get into these conversations around inclusivity and exclusivity, and everyone always thinks that their line of inclusivity and exclusivity is like, well, if you exclude these people, then if you clap, then you exclude people who have panic attacks from clapping and you'll, you go, yes. And, or if you have, uh, if you have sort of sight, if you have things on stage and you exclude people who are blind, you go, well, you know, you're always excluding someone by every single value you can take. There are obviously some ways of excluding people which are worse than others, but I, um, it can end up chasing its own tail. It can. Yeah. Um, I think there's good, something that, that's nice about sort of community things can be where you do have quite a lot of roles. You know, there are some people who are n never going to be good at like kind of doing the speaking bit, but they're fantastic at making the tea. I don't know if that, that's the best example, but or, or putting out the chairs or, or whatever it would be. But I think, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's a bit of a detail, but there's, there's something about kind of making sure there's a lot of richness for, for the different you know, talents that people have to offer. I think that that is spot on and the and what I love about the looking to congregations is that those different roles are seen as being really important. You are doing you're you're putting the chairs down, but you're part of God's plan. It's like you are putting the chairs down and you're doing it as part of this congregation and then that's part of 10 congregations in the city and it's part of 100 congregations in the county and it's part of you know and when you're putting the when you're doing the chairs you're, you're you're actually part of this and i think that's what like that sort of intermediate organization which connects our personal lives to uh, bigger narratives bigger movements is really essential because so much of what we see uh, in out in the world we're, we're like oh no i'm too small i'm too i'm too little what can i do and it's actually no if you are you know putting out the chairs is a vital part of this and uh yeah I, th I think that there's a really rich uh tradition in uh congregations of making that super clear one thing which uh when i was sort of reading your work it really sort of chimed with me was that so of the six pillars of lifefulness you know this is the six different things which happen in spiritual communities and don't worry, there's loads of flexibility in them. It's not one way. And you know, you might find a fifth or a sixth or, uh, you know, might only see four there. But uh, you've got to start somewhere in these things. And is that personal growth is like something you go and see in all manner of different congregational uh, ba uh, backgrounds, you know, right thinking, right doing, uh, whether it be discipleship. Uh, and in uh, your book i really love this idea that actually you know that you've got to know when to call time on personal growth that this is it shouldn't be something that you're constantly doing so i'd love you to expand on that because it's a really wonderful idea yeah so i guess you know there's a there's a there's a modern discourse uh of kind of continuous improvement personal growth ever greater kind of you know, you know life development um and i think a lot of that is great but um uh, there's a there's a line from Annie DeFranco. It's a uh, she says uh, every every tool is a weapon if you if you hold it right. So I think kind of personal growth can be a tool, but it can be weaponized really easily. And and I actually see a lot of people for whom you know they they come in and they feel oppressed, deeply oppressed because they think they're supposed to be fulfilling more, doing more with their lives, kind of growing. They think they should be growing every week, 
and they're falling short on their growing goals and people will think that they're useless people because they're not growing enough. Um, and, you know, they say, well, how can I grow faster? How can I grow more effectively? And, and sometimes one of the things that we, we, we explore is, well, is, is that the goal? Or, or maybe you, you want to, you know, maybe you want to like kind of trade in that measuring stick that you're using um, uh, and, uh, and kind of orientate yourself in a different way. And I think, it, you know, I, I don't have an agenda as to which is the right answer. But um, sometimes you see people trying to measure up to to norms that are basically a bit crazy, you know. And I think the modern world is full of that. These these crazy norms, you know, you've got to have this perfect house, perfect relationship, perfect career. You've got to have with all of that, and you've got to be spiritually perfect. But not just spiritually perfect, but spiritually perfect and growing still more. Um, so a lot to live up to. I felt I felt like really intimidated just you. Describing that, I think you're absolutely right that, that the expectations are incredibly high. And again, it goes back to the, the point you were making about how inclusive is a space where the expectations for people are so superhuman. The, uh, I, though I also did love the, uh, what, that Annie DeFranco lyric, instead of like seeing it as a, a warning uh, about, uh, you know, how our minds can go and turn positive things into negative things. Actually, it's Annie DeFranco giving advice on in case zombies attack and you're caught in your house and it's like remember every tool is a weapon in fact it's anna annie defranco in camo gear she's more <laughs> like a sort of uh like a ray mears type or whoever those sas guys are it's a different side of annie defranco like a prepper uh but uh that's probably not how, is that how she meant it really so sure but you know um yeah there's room for interpretation after so. you've written something it is in it's up to the readers to interpret it so that's uh that's our uh, interpretation of it or certainly mine uh i think we have come to the end of uh, our time and so it'd be great uh, if you could let people know where they can go and get uh your book and uh and any anywhere else where they can get uh, more elton on tap so yeah, so the, the, the book, it's called Talking It Better from Insight to Change in the Therapy Room. And uh, uh, you can get it on Amazon. I don't know if Amazon is, is heresy around here, but uh, I know a lot of people use it. Um, and uh, if you're in the UK, you can get it directly from my publisher, which is PCCS Books. And don't tell anybody, but it's a bit cheaper if you get it from them directly. Um, Ooh, sneaky. Um, but if you Google, if you Google me, Matthew Elton, maybe put in something like Edinburgh or therapy or something. Otherwise, you'll get Twat. lots of pages about, about Elton John. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then, then there's uh, there's links to the book and all sorts, you know. Uh, I just realised after saying that, that really made a joke on myself because there are not very many Sanderson Joneses around. You can Google me with Sanderson Jones twat and it will find me instantly. So I've been uh, hosted by my own twatard <laughs> there. Uh, <laughs> hey, Matthew, thanks so much for uh, coming on. It has been a delight to speak to you. And I know that our listeners are going to go and dig into your work more deeply. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a really fun conversation. I don't think we've talked all that much about my book, but we've talked a lot about uh, interesting things and, and that's great. So I've enjoyed myself. That was a super interesting conversation. I, I mean, it, it ranged all over the place. I loved his insight into communities as a place to learn and to learn to learn. And I think also just that idea is change is something you learn how to do will just uh, live with me for a long time. Absolutely, particularly 
stuck with me the idea of the importance of acceptance, mm. the importance of acceptance from the people around you while you're trying to change and while you're learning how to change. And I wonder how we can build communities that both have real clear standards of behavior so they don't enable people to do terrible things to other people and take advantage of other people, but also are accepting enough to understand that people have learning and growing to do and be places where they can do that growing. That's one of the things that really stuck with me from speaking with Matthew today. Hey there, that was our convo with Matt. Uh, he's really great. Uh, we're going to stay in touch with him because I love meeting these people who are interested in what we're talking about and then thinking about, okay, how can, you know, is there some sort of conference or gathering or something where we get those folk together to go and really help develop the sort of theory and practice of lifefulness. So uh, right now, what am I doing? I always use this as a bit of an update on the Lifefulness Project. I am trying to set up my room so that I can record videos. And it turns out it is a real, it's a real nightmare to go and get all these things together. Uh, they've just spent ages trying to get sort out one thing. And then it turns out, something else has to be done for lots of like literally because a lead that I have is not as long as I want it to be. So uh, those are the sorts of things which are happening in the lifefulness world. If you are an avid listener, you'll know that I've been having a bit of a sort of mental healthily, uh, well, healthily makes it sound as though I was uh, mentally healthy, but you know, a bit of an up and down few weeks. So now the idea is once again, to remember to you know go and decelerate a bit don't try to do everything admittedly now i'm talking about doing videos but that's part of the decelerating my sort of plan that i was scheming up was a very long way round in order to do that still something very exciting but yikes sometimes there's just so many exciting things to do and uh, i try to do them all so thanks uh, so much for listening thanks to james my wonderful co-host and collaborator thank you to matthew elton thanks to mavs our amazing producer and thanks to roman rapak and miro shop for making the music that you are listening to right now <laughs>